0: Tracy, there's a new story that's made our jobs very exciting again.
1: Uh, well, there's any number of things at the moment, but I think I know what you're talking about. It's trade, right? Yeah,
0: but you're actually right that we're in this moment for markets where there just seems to be a lot going on again, lots of different crosswinds and narratives and themes, whether it's anxiety about rising inflation, concern about the Fed, the changing leadership in the market with regards to tech stocks, And now, uh, as you say, trade has really come to the fore as a major thing that people are trying to wrap their heads around.
1: Right. So what we've seen uh, just over the past couple of weeks is the Trump administration unveiled a big set of tariffs on goods imported from China and then China retaliated. They announced, uh, I think it was tariffs on about $50 billion worth of goods, including Aircraft parts, soybeans and cars, which are um, some big ones for the market and for the economy.
0: Right. Because a few days earlier, China had announced some retaliatory tariff measures, but they were on pretty minor stuff like ginseng exports, which I doubt the U.S. exports a lot of ginseng to China or (laughs) macadamia nuts and stuff like that or wine earlier, stuff that's kind of a little bit more marginal. But when they announced the tariffs on soybeans, given that that's a major crop in the U.S. and given how much China consumes of soybeans, then people were like, whoa, this is maybe a little bit more serious than we expected.
1: Right. This is the week that everyone decided that soybeans were actually very, very important. Um, We are sort of dancing around one issue, Joe, that we've been speaking a lot about internally, and that's what do we call this? Are we calling it a trade war?
0: Right. We've had this discussion internally because I kind of get the impression that trade war is one of these things that doesn't have a very crisp definition. It's kind of like, you know it when you see it. So some people are using that term. Others aren't. But that's obviously something we have to figure out. And are we just seeing sort of a standard early stage negotiation or is this a serious thing? And that's sort of what we're all trying to uh, wrap our heads around.
1: Right, and some people are being really cute about it and calling it a trade skirmish or a trade standoff or a trade tiff uh, any number we're of synonyms. Trade for that. war. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So for the purposes of this podcast, can we just agree that we're going to call it various things and no one can get mad at us?
0: That sounds good. Well, I think we actually have the perfect guest to tell us exactly what we're seeing right now. We're going to be speaking with Brad Setzer. He's the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics. He's written for years about trade and other macroeconomic issues. He blogs. He used to be at the Treasury. Anyone who follows this space has has surely seen his work. He's here with us now. Uh, Brad, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So, Brad, uh, what is a trade war?
2: I think a trade war is a series of measures— I guess a significant set of trade restrictive measures by one country that prompt an equally significant response from another country. And you could call that a trade war. Or you could say you need another round of escalation before you have a trade war. I wouldn't use the term trade war if you're playing in what you might call the standard trade remedy space, mm. a standard dumping case, a standard safeguards case. But the U.S. is doing a 301 case, which is a tool that hasn't been used for a long time. And uh, 50 billion is, it's not enormous relative to the size of our economy, but for a trade measure, it's quite large. So if we proceed to the stage where we actually implement the tariffs, which we haven't done, and if China proceeds to implement the tariffs in response, I think for all intents and purposes, that would meet a reasonable standard Mm. for a trade war.
1: So we want to focus on what actually happens to the international economy when such a trade war is underway. But before we do, this is a big question that's currently hanging over um, markets and people who are watching this entire spat unfold. What are the prospects, in your opinion, that we get some sort of compromise before the tariffs are actually enacted?
2: I'm having a hard time getting a clear read on that particular issue, in large part because I don't quite know what the Trump administration views as an acceptable compromise. There's been a lot of criticism that the Trump administration hasn't really articulated what trade peace would look like, what set of concessions would be enough. I think the Chinese are willing to offer some modest concessions, and maybe they will go beyond the more modest concessions that they've been signaling. But I don't know that the U.S. has decided on what would constitute an acceptable offer.
0: Can I just say before we go on that I am very relieved and uh, I'm actually excited that you say that if the current measures went into effect, we could call it a trade war because I was worried that you were going to say, oh, everyone needs to be less hysterical about this. (laughs) So it's nice to talk to an expert who has given us the green light to use the exciting language. So I just want to say thank you. Right. Look,
2: a a trade war is not a shooting war. A a trade war is uh, a period of economic hostility.
0: Tell us, you mentioned the difference between the standard trade remedies, the anti-dumping stuff, stuff like that, In a 301 case, Uh, just walk us through the differences between those two things. So, you know,
2: a standard remedy, a safeguard or a dumping comes when a sort of specific product is flowing into, say, the U.S. The industry petitions for relief either on the grounds that there's been a surge in imports, which is a safeguard, or on the grounds that the other country is dumping or unfairly subsidizing Uh, its products, in which case there would be a a dumping duty or countervailing duty. All these things go through a a standardized process with lags. Uh, At the end of the day, the president has to authorize uh, the tariffs in the case of uh, a safeguard. But they are approved within the rules, remedies that are available. And after the fact, people will litigate whether the dumping Criteria were used correctly and whether there really was a subsidy, so there may be cases in the WTO, but these are sort of the the within-the-system safety valves, relief measures. A 301, in this particular case, is aimed at practices which the USTR argues uh, hurt the U.S. economy that fall outside the scope of China's WTO commitments, and because of that, the U.S. is essentially unilaterally imposing tariffs and other sanctions on China in order to change policies where there, where there isn't really an argument that China's already agreed in the WTO to get rid of them.
1: So do the 301 measures, do those have a different impact uh, than the sort of more standard anti-dumping measures would?
2: Well, in the, a dumping case, you're going to target the sector where the dumping takes place. In a 301, you're essentially choosing the sectors where you want to impose tariffs to impose pain in order to try to convince your trading partner to remove measures that you judge to be unfair. Uh, So it's a U.S. determination that China's actions constitute something that impedes American exports and impedes American firms. And as a result of that unilateral judgment, the U.S. will decide on its own what sectors it targets. So there's a lot more freedom and flexibility to uh, broaden out the set of sectors that are covered by the tariffs when you're not uh, responding to a specific concern of a specific industry that is seeking relief from a flood of imports.
0: Now, President Trump seems very fixated on the bilateral trade deficit with China. He's always throwing around that number, I think, 500 billion or whatever it is. And he just wants to see it lowered. And typically the response from economists is that looking at the trade deficit in isolation like that is not a particularly productive way to think about our trading relationship with any given country, or even the idea of that a trade deficit with all countries is per se a bad thing. Most uh, economists argue is not a particularly useful way to think about the scoreboard. So can you, for the average listener, sort of explain why that is generally not viewed as a useful way to think about the relationship? So think
2: about the following set of trading patterns. Say the U.S. is exporting a lot of construction equipment to a third party, which is mining a lot of iron, which is shipping that iron to, uh, I guess, a, a second party. I got my math a little wrong. That is taking iron and uh, then selling consumer goods. It is quite possible that that three-way trade would be entirely balanced. Think of it as the US selling construction equipment to Australia, Australia selling iron to China, China selling consumer goods to the United States. Could be a perfectly balanced trading relationship, but the US would be running a bilateral deficit with China. Uh, So there's, there's no particular reason why trade should balance between any individual country pair. And when you look at simply the bilateral balance, that can be uh, quite misleading. The global trade deficit is, I think, a little bit different. The global trade deficit indicates that you're either receiving equity investment from the world or borrowing from the world. In the U.S. case, we've been borrowing from the world for a long time. And the trade deficit represents... Both, uh, you know, we're importing more than we export, but also that we are building up our external debt. And there's always a question about whether or not that buildup of external debt is uh, fueling unhealthy economic expansion, fueling a lot of investment, or whether it's uh, some sense unhealthy, that it reflects an excess of spending, an excess of consumption, and that we are borrowing from our future wealth. and I would say the U.S. trade deficit is right at the edge of being a problem. That's my personal view. So I don't, I don't view that the any trade deficit is a problem, but I do think that trade deficits can be a problem.
1: Okay. Well, as Joe mentioned, Donald Trump uh, clearly has his own views about uh, the desirability of trade deficits. So let's say that all these various tariffs go through and we have an actual trade war on our hands. Walk us through the real world effects that we would likely see, you know, from day one, how does it actually play out?
2: Well, before we jump to the implementation of the tariffs, I think it's important to recognize that there's a period of comment and the immediate uh, next step will be a essentially a review of the U.S. tariffs where industries that are believed they're adversely affected will lobby USDR to change the list. And then after that, there's a period of time for negotiations. Tariffs don't have to be introduced at the end of the comment period. So we're not necessarily going to implement tariffs tomorrow. It could come with a significant lag. But let's assume that there isn't an agreement, that the tariff list stays pretty much as it is. The U.S. was put 25% tariffs on $50 billion, roughly, of Chinese goods. Some are more... Final stage consumer goods like TVs. Some are more intermediate inputs into production, various categories of parts parts for air conditioners, parts for various mechanical devices. In some cases, there may not be any possibility to substitute, in which case, American consumers would see an increase in price and the US government would see an increase in revenue. 50 billion is ballpark 25, uh, a quarter of a point of US GDP. So the tariff would be, if, if fully paid, would be in the order of magnitude of a little over, you know, uh, five basis points of GDP. So, you know, meaningful but not giant. In some product categories, though, there may be opportunities to substitute, be it U.S. production or be it production of parts from Europe or Mexico or elsewhere in Asia, in which case you would see trade diverted away from China toward the untariffed parts of the global economy. Then the economy would react to the Chinese tariffs. And there I think it really depends on the, the sectors. Uh, China went after the big three, or threatened to go after the big three uh, U.S. export categories to China, aircraft, soybeans, and autos. With aircraft, I think they were pretty, they may have been playing it a little cute, they clearly have exempted wide bodies from the tariffs they may have exempted most of the new 737 line there's a debate about whether the 737 8 max has uh, a weight that would exclude it from the tariff or not they clearly have uh, tariffed used 737s for what it's worth and Gulfstreams. so i think you can argue that that it was designed to avoid immediately whacking Chinese airlines that have large orders on the books for Boeing. And I think what probably matters more going forward is will those airlines continue to buy Boeings or will they tilt towards Airbus? There's an interesting side note there, which is that China has always tried to play Boeing against Airbus, both to get a better price, of course, but also to induce both companies to shift more production to China, to do offsets, to buy more parts, and to help build up China's own aviation industry. If there isn't a threat of buying Boeing, China loses a little bit of leverage in future negotiations with Airbus. So I think China is Uh. in some ways constrained in the aircraft sector. There's another important note, though, which is China has its own narrow-body aircraft, the C-919, and undoubtedly Chinese airlines are going to be buying C-1919s rather than 737s or A-320s.
0: Does China have ambitions to have a homegrown aviation company that is on the same scale and capabilities as a Boeing or an Airbus, and is that plausible in the medium-term future in your view? Uh,
2: China unambiguously has that ambition. China has been working uh, uh, over time to build up a domestic aviation industry. Whether or not they will succeed at building planes that can compete with the latest generation from Airbus and Boeing, I think remains an open question. But I I suspect that China won't give up. It's too important. It's too central to the China 25 uh, plan and to China's own vision of what it wants to become.
0: This China 2025 plan, I don't think is something that a lot of Americans are particularly familiar with. The ambitions the country has to sort of develop its own homegrown champions in all these different spaces like medical technology and aviation and semiconductors. Can you just explain to us a little bit about what this plan is and how they've gone about implementing it so far?
2: So China 2025 identifies uh, a set of advanced manufacturing technology sectors, generally, you know, medical equipment, semiconductors, aviation, next generation vehicles. And it sets out targets for Chinese production and Chinese market share, Chinese uh, firm and Chinese production inside China to meet the Chinese market. A lot of these sectors are sort of cutting edge sectors where China now is a large buyer of goods made in the rest of the world. So there certainly is a component in the targets of import substitution. These are products that China now imports and China has articulated a goal of being able to meet its own demand with its own production and to do so with technology developed and owned by China. So uh, there is a very legitimate trade complaint around these industrial policy goals. I think the tools that China uses vary
0: from sector to sector. As a leading real estate manager, principal asset management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at PrincipalAM.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: So how much do the U.S. tariffs actually play into China's long-term ambitions of import substitution? Because, you know, if If the U.S. slaps uh, tariffs on things like aerospace equipment and China has ambitions to build up its own industry in the space, then that seems almost like a benefit to them.
2: Well, I'm not sure that's the case. China in, say, aerospace needs to develop its capability. And as I mentioned earlier, in order to develop its capability, China likes to play Boeing against Airbus. It got Airbus to build an A320 line in China. And if... The U.S. is saying more or less if Boeing subcontracts from China, it faces a tariff on anything it imports. That would discourage Boeing at the margin from shifting production to China or shifting some of its contracting towards Chinese sub subcomponent manufacturing. And if China is not going to buy any Boeings going forward because of the Chinese retaliation, Airbus's incentives change. They don't have to produce aircraft in China to sell to China. They're the only supplier. There's not that competition. So I think that's the sense in which uh, China is in some ways still constrained by the fact that in some of these sectors, it is not yet at the cutting edge of technology. And it still needs to play uh, European and U.S. firms off against each other to help it progress up the technological ladder.
0: One of the things you hear, and I think the Trump administration has frustrations about it, is the degree to which China demands some sort of transfer of technological know how from these companies that want to participate in the Chinese market. So I don't know exactly what it does with aviation, but this idea that these big companies, if they want access to the Chinese market, have to have some mechanism to give their technology to the local players. Can you walk us through what exactly China does with that and how much that deviates from sort of typical international norms?
2: So this is uh, the substance of the 301 complaint. This is what the U.S. is saying that China is doing that warrants uh, the unilateral U.S. tariffs. China, under its WTO obligations, cannot condition approval of investment on technology transfer as a matter of policy. So uh, that is one of China's WTO obligations. But there are an awful lot of things that China still can do. So China is not required on the WTO to allow investment into any sector. That's a choice that China makes. In many cases, China can require, does require, that any U.S. firm wanting to produce in China set up a joint venture. And if the joint venture partner and most of the plausible joint venture partners will be state-owned firms, given the nature of China's economy, and if the joint venture partner says that as a commercial matter, we will only enter into this uh, joint venture if you agree to transfer technology to our subsidiary, where we will have 51% control, then you have to kind of transfer the technology as part of the conditions of the deal, But it is not a matter of government policy. It is a matter of commercial negotiations between two companies. Similarly, uh, say, in the uh, electric vehicle space, if you want to qualify for the subsidies for new energy vehicles, well, you're much better off if you have a Chinese partner and if the technology has been moved to China. So, you know, there's there's a lot of sources of pressure given the nature of China's economy, that don't uh, come in the form of formally conditioning as a matter of government policy, approval of investment on technology transfer, but have nonetheless created de facto requirements that if you want to supply the Chinese market, it's pretty hard to do that uh, without producing in China. And if you want to produce in China, you pretty much need a Hmm. state uh, firm as your joint venture partner. And that state firm can, as a matter of its own policy, so to speak, ask for tech transfer. Because if it doesn't get that tech transfer, it will lose out because, uh, you know, the joint venture with the European company has agreed to do something a little bit more in China. So there, there's, there certainly are many pressure points. And I don't think very many people challenge the core truth of the 301 company.
1: I want to talk about something that comes up whenever we talk about the U.S.-China trade deficit, and that is the idea of China retaliating uh, by basically boycotting the U.S.'s biggest export, which has to be U.S. treasuries. Uh, This always, always comes up, the idea that China is going to retaliate in a trade war by selling off some of its vast treasury holdings. How realistic is do you think that actually is? And I know there are strong opinions on either side.
2: I personally think I was one of the first to use the line uh, that the uh, U.S.'s biggest export was uh, treasuries and agencies 10 years ago when the U.S. was running a 5% of GDP uh, trade deficit. So it's been one of my <laughs> uh, favorite lines for a long time.
1: Oh, I've definitely borrowed it since then, so thank you. Uh,
2: I'm, I'm not sure I can claim original credit, but I uh, I like the phrase. Let's stipulate a couple of things. Let's stipulate that Chinese holdings of treasuries are typically a function of China's reserve holdings. Private Chinese investors tend not to buy treasuries. They tend to put money in bank accounts or in real estate. So the vast bulk of the Chinese holdings of treasuries are a reflection of Chinese reserves. Second point to stipulate is that over time, the amount of treasuries that China holds has tended to move in line with the evolution of China's reserves. It's been a pretty constant share of China's portfolio over time. And third point is that China's reserves are right now not growing very fast. So you would not normally expect China to be a big buyer right now. In fact, if you look at kind of the global flow of funds, China's current account surplus, so the aggregate amount that it is lending to the world, is smaller than that of Japan, certainly smaller than that of the euro area and well below the combined current account surplus of the asian newly industrialized economies, korea, taiwan, singapore and, you know, just for the sake of argument and not I would throw in thailand into that category. So much or even the majority of the financing that the US is getting to support its trade deficit and current account deficit is not right now coming from china. So I think those are kind of important background pieces. This is not 2007 when China's current account surplus was the biggest in the world and when China was adding $600 billion to its reserves every year and two-thirds of that ballpark was flowing into uh, U.S. bonds. China, though, of course, does have a large, outstanding stock of treasuries, biggest in the world, probably a little bit bigger. Then it then shows up in the uh, data the Treasury releases. And China, if it wanted to, could move its portfolio around. We know that during the crisis, China shifted its portfolio. It sold agencies, and it bought treasuries. And by selling agencies, it put pressure on the ag- the agency market. So China can affect spreads in the and market. And
0: just for the uh, terminology, the agency market, this is like Fannie and Freddie, the housing agencies. Uh, that Sorry. issued a lot of, no, I just, you know, for just for the sake of people, uh, the terminology that went into funding a lot of American homes and stuff. Uh, that's right, and that was,
2: you know, before the crisis, everyone spoke of China as being a big buyer of treasuries, when actually before the crisis, China was the biggest buyer of agencies. It's uh, It's like one of those mm. little details that is actually quite important that tends to get glossed over. But during the crisis, China shifted its portfolio out of agencies and into treasuries. That undoubtedly caused problems in the agency market. But remember that in QE1, the Fed started buying agencies, and that stabilized the market. I think there's a a little bit of a lesson there. If China sells treasuries, A, it has to put its money somewhere. It may sell long-term treasuries and buy short-term bills, which would raise long-term rates relative to short-term rates. It may sell treasuries and then sell dollars and move into euros or yen. That would weaken the dollar, and I think it would cause more problems for Japan and Europe, which would see their currencies appreciate and have difficulty exporting. Or it could just move within the US market, move to the short end of the curve, which is probably the most plausible option. If it did that, I think it would have a short-term impact on the market, But I don't think you should think of it as a one round game. If it's impacting the market in a way that adversely impacts the US economy, the Fed should logically respond, either by adjusting the pace at which it tightens or by adjusting the pace of the balance sheet roll off. I think at the end of the day, there should be no question that the Federal Reserve has a much bigger impact Mm. on the US Treasury market than China.
0: So just to sort of sum up what you're saying, a lot of interesting points there is that this sort of naive way you hear people talk about it is, we borrow a lot from China. One day they might not want to lend to us, and then we're in trouble. Whereas the more subtle point is, yes, China could change its policies and change the market, but the response would be not as clear-cut, it's not as binary, and the moves in some ways could harm them or harm others. It's just it's not as simple as, say, your bank no longer willing to extend your credit.
2: That's right. If you work through all the 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 reactions and the counter reactions, what eventually happens is the Fed ends up easing and the dollar ends up weakening, which isn't actually necessarily a bad thing for the U.S. economy. It's a bad thing, much worse thing in some ways for those who've lent money to the U.S. in dollars. And so it's... Uh, it is hard to imagine how China could cause a, a funding crisis right. for the U.S. Treasury. Actually, China's greatest leverage comes, at least in my view, when it is buying things other than treasuries. When it was buying agencies or if it's buying corporate bonds, it's buying things that in the normal course of monetary policy, the Fed doesn't typically buy. And so it is much easier for China to influence credit spreads or the agency treasury spread, and a little bit more difficult for the Fed to respond. Although, obviously, we did respond by extending our purchases uh, of assets to agencies. So I think there are subtle ways that China can put pressure on the U.S. market, but that at the end of the day, this isn't China's most powerful source of leverage.
1: So once a trade war is well and truly underway, What stops it? Like, what is the resolution? I guess my other question is how how much of our existing tariffs stem from trade wars that started, you know, 10, 20, maybe even 50 years ago? How long do these effects actually linger?
2: There are interesting quirks in uh, global trade that reflect the legacy of past trade fights. So the very high U.S. tariff on light trucks apparently stems from a fight uh, in the 1960s. So we have a 2.5% tariff on cars, but a 25% tariff on light trucks. And that that's now enshrined in our WTO commitments. And da, 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 da. Back a long, long time ago, the Europeans agreed to, uh, as a concession to the U.S., to get rid of tariffs on soybeans, but not grain, which is why soybeans sort of emerged as the globally traded animal food and became a much more traded commodity than, say, corn, given that both can be used uh, as a source of uh, animal feed. So, you know, there certainly are permanent scars in the trading system that reflect past decisions. I think there are three ways uh, the current 301 tariff threat could play out. One is after the list is refined... There's a period of negotiation, and the U.S. and China come to a deal that either permanently removes the threat of tariffs or leads the Trump administration to, let's say, uh, put the tariffs on hold on ICE to allow more time for negotiation. We will withdraw this current petition, and we will refile it if necessary. But we don't have full agreement, but we have enough progress to allow us to have confidence that we will get to agreement with more time. That's possibility uh, one. Possibility two is that the U.S. imposes its tariffs, China imposes its tariffs, and more or less, that's the end of it. There are tariffs on soybeans, there are tariffs on uh, U.S. auto exports. Interestingly enough, the biggest, at least in my view, exporters of cars from the U.S. to China are the two German transplants, so the BMW factory in South Carolina and the Mercedes factory in Alabama. So uh, the global economy is integrated. (laughs) And uh, then it sort of stops there, that there's no further escalation. And then uh, there will be ongoing negotiations over the conditions that would allow both sides to step back down, but there wouldn't be a threat of further measures. And China, of course, would challenge the U.S. tariffs for the WTO because the 301's legality under the WTO is very uh, unclear. The U.S. is violating its WTO commitments by raising tariffs against Chinese goods, at least in the Chinese view. Third option is that it continues to escalate and that the U.S. Uh, comes up with an additional uh, round of tariffs and then China responds with another round of tariffs. And so we go from $50 to a bigger number. And there are other ways that either China or the U.S. could escalate. So uh, China could retaliate against U.S. firms operating inside China. The U.S. could uh, take uh, steps that adversely affect Chinese interests in the U.S.
0: All right. So then we got to put you on the spot here. Of the scenarios, what is your guess and what is the trading relationship between the U.S. and China look like a year from now?
2: If I had to guess right now, I would say we both implement the tariffs and then it stops. That seems like a, a plausible equilibrium. I think it'll be hard for the Trump administration to get enough from China to convince the president, who seems personally animated by this, to step back. I also don't see any other major legal process underway that where the US would initiate another type of complaint that would extend tariffs to new sectors. The highest probability is that we do round one of a trade war, but then we don't, there isn't further escalation. But of course that has knock on impacts throughout the global economy.
0: Brad Setzer, Stephen A. Tannenbaum, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council for Foreign Relations. That was awesome. I learned a lot from that discussion. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure.
1: Joe, I enjoyed that conversation so much, not least because I continued to learn more about soybeans with every passing day this month.
0: Yeah, I definitely did not predict that the big commodity at the heart of the biggest economic story this month would be soybeans. But it's kind of a pleasant surprise. And I guess we should have seen it coming because, as Brad mentioned, there's the big three, aviation, autos and soybeans. So if we were a little more knowledgeable, we could have seen that coming. Nonetheless, now you have to learn something new all the time.
1: Yeah. Uh the other thing I liked about that conversation obviously a really really nuanced uh series of thoughts from Brad but I also like that we have the go ahead to use the term trade war essentially or we're one round of escalation away from it.
0: Yeah. I agree. It's right. If the uh if the tariffs actually go into place as planned then we have the green light to use that colorful language. I'm glad that you brought up the Treasury issuance and the the theoretical threat of China not buying our treasuries. Because when you think about various ways that if things deteriorated between the two countries and deterioration could transmit themselves to the market, you always hear about the treasury angle. And so I like that it's not that there's nothing there, but that it's just far more complex and subtle than perhaps most of us think of it.
1: Yeah, I suppose in retrospect, it's not a major surprise that uh, talk about China selling off its U.S. bond holdings tends to uh, descend into a lot of rhetoric on either side rather than having a realistic conversation about it. But there we are. But Brad uh, definitely walked us through all the details of that, which was fantastic. Um, The other interesting thing, Joe, and I know you've been talking about it, but the market reaction to the trade wars that we've been seeing so far.
0: Yeah, I love the way in which people's perception of how the trade war is going, or the trade tensions, we're not there yet, how the trade tensions are going, seem to invariably be dictated by the market. So on days when markets are green, it's like, oh, people are optimistic that they're going to be talks and some of the rhetoric is easing. And then that afternoon, stocks turn red and suddenly everyone is uh, afraid of imminent trade wars. It's a good reminder then our business, Price always leads narrative. We like to pretend that we construct these stories, and then the market digests them and then reprices. But I'm pretty sure it's the exact opposite. The market does its thing, and then we construct stories ex post facto to explain it. And it would be nice to get away from that, but uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon.
1: Good thing we don't host a uh, narrative markets podcast or anything like that. No, Otherwise, our we job would never would be do tricky. That. We
0: would never do that. All right, well- and we would never like do articles about these subjects day after day trying to explain market moves. I'm glad we never do anything like that.
1: <laughs> okay, I think we better stop here. This has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad Setzer with an underscore between Brad and Setzer. And you can follow our producer, Topher Forges, at Forges T. And follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.